Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue in our series in the book of Genesis called Confident Faith. So turn to Genesis chapter 22, verse 15 to 23, 2, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message called Faith Through the Years. If you are, well, how shall I say it? Well, let me be blunt. If you're old, there, I've said it. If you're old, I wonder if you've ever noticed how quickly time passes. And if you're young, I wonder if you've ever talked to an old person and they said, man, time has passed so very slowly. Well, of course not. Everyone, as the years pass by, begins to wonder how quickly time passes. And when we come to the end of Genesis 22 and then to the beginning of Genesis 23, we notice time has passed quickly and things are about to change. But here's a secret. As time passes, there is never a time in which you're not called upon to trust God implicitly at every level. You're never too young to learn to trust God and you are never so old that you'll not be called upon to trust God anew. Faith is a lifetime journey. So Abraham was already old when God called him to leave Haran and go to the land that he would promise him. And at an age of around 75, he packed up and followed God on a grand adventure. And what an adventure it was. He, of all the people on earth, had been chosen as the man through whom God would end the curse and bring a blessing to the world the man through whom the whole world would find a blessing. If you bless Abraham, you'll be blessed. If you curse Abraham and his seed, well, you'll be cursed. You know, since his initial call, so much has happened. How quickly time has passed. But nothing more significant than the birth of Isaac. In our study of Abraham's life and watching his faith mature, we've come to the moment which represents the pinnacle of his deep, abiding, enduring trust in God. Abraham has gone up Mount Moriah and offered up his son in sacrifice, believing that if God asked him to do that, God would have to raise him from the dead. Abraham becomes convinced that no matter what is done or what comes to pass or or what inconveniences come his way, the promise of God that were made to him and through him to the world will never fail. We come then to the events immediately after God delivers Isaac from death and proves Abraham's faith and sets the stage for the sacrificial ritual of worship, leading ultimately to the sacrifice of Jesus. After those events, we come to Genesis 22, verses 15 to 18. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Let's start at the end and work our way all the way to the beginning. God tells Abraham, you will be blessed because you listened to my voice, or you'll be blessed because you were obedient to my voice. I think we do well to stop and consider and to apply. A great many contemporary Christians are deeply confused about the relationship of obedience to faith. And furthermore, some deeply confused Christians even argue that to insist on and demand obedience to the commands of God is works religion. 
You know, I hear people out of this confusion sometimes say, well, you know, Christianity is not about do's and don'ts. It's about a personal relationship with Jesus. So let me address this issue. Too often, when we believe in half-truths, then we fill in the other half with error and we're in danger. Yes, yes, Christianity is about a personal relationship with a great God who created all things and who through Jesus redeemed us unto himself. Yes, yes, the veil in the temple was torn in two, indicating that the barrier separating God and us has been taken away through the death of Jesus. We are invited into the presence of the Holy of Holies, worshiping God, bringing our prayer request directly to him, Jesus as our only mediator. And we're intimate with God now, knowing the reality of being adopted into his family through the Holy Spirit, God does draw us and speak to us personally. See, that's a glorious truth, and we need to keep trumpeting this truth. But it is untrue to say that Christianity is not about do's and don'ts. Christ does command things we must do and things we must never do. Hebrews 6 and 10 warns those who deliberately keep on sinning that there remains no sacrifice for sins. As an example, if you're living in adultery and refuse to repent and rationalize your behavior and make excuses and then even slander your spouse, there remains no sacrifice for sins, no avenue of forgiveness for you. Obedience is not a suggestion, it's a command. But to this, someone might respond, well, yeah, well, how is that then? Are we to live by obedience or by faith? Are we saved by obeying the commands or by faith in the one sacrifice of Jesus on his cross? I'm confused. So listen up. The life of Abraham teaches the nature of true faith. Abraham obeyed God when God told him to go and sacrifice his son. We saw that he reasoned that since he knew that Isaac was the child of promise, and since he knew that the promise of God couldn't possibly fail, and so he reasoned that God would have to raise Isaac from the dead. Don't you see? Abraham's obedience is not an obedience based on works. It's an obedience based on faith, on confident trust in this truth, that when God makes a promise, he always keeps it. So what's the difference between an obedience based on works and an obedience based on faith? Well, let me try to explain. An obedience based on works is the idea that if you obey God, God will reckon your obedience as righteousness. So when you give to the poor, when you refrain from adultery, when you bless those who persecute you, when you honor your father and mother, when you do the things that God requires, at least so the person of works thinks, well, all these merits, all these things of obedience are earning your way to heaven. Now, if that's how you think, that you're going to get to heaven because you've done your best, well, then I promise you, you're no child of Abraham and you're no follower of Jesus. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that your good deeds are counted up for eternity. No, no. Your religion is worthless. You've deceived yourself. Listen to God's assessment of your life. I'm reading Isaiah 64, verse 6. We've all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Did you hear that? All. 
All our righteous deeds are like polluted garments, or as other translations say, like filthy rags. God regards your best efforts as worthless. His standards are much higher than you have ever imagined. All of your obedience earns you nothing. Well, if that's true, how do I get right with God? Well, the answer, by faith. That's what Abraham learned. Genesis 15, verse 6 says that Abraham believed God. He believed God, and it, that is, his faith, was counted or was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham was acceptable before God through grace, that is, through the unmerited favor of God. That grace came to Abraham through faith, through trusting God and his promises. But why did Abraham have to obey God then? Well, not because he was trying to earn anything. He obeyed because he trusted God. God said, leave your country. And so Abraham left, believing that God had something better for him. God said, sacrifice your son. And he obeyed because he believed that God wanted to perfect his faith. And he believed that Isaac was God's promise. He believed that God was giving him the best. That's why he obeyed. So let me tell you about the person who commits adultery. That person believes that breaking the law will give him or her greater pleasure than the pleasure God has in store for them through holiness and purity. The person who refuses to be generous is afraid that God won't take care of him when he gives generously. In each case, those who disobey make God to be a liar. God promises eternal joy, and instead, unsure that God can give them what he has promised, they take matters into their own hands. They disobey precisely because they disbelieve. They malign God's reputation, and each act of disobedience slanders the one who has made promises. That's why faith and obedience always work together. When we trust God, we will obey, even to the point of laying down our lives, hoping for a better resurrection. I mean, why not? God can be trusted. Do you ever wonder how your giving to Back to the Bible Canada makes a difference? Shona said Back to the Bible Canada continues to bring a drifting world back to God's Word don't ever change. Kim said, not only do I find the program enjoyable, it goes way beyond that to be a sustaining ministry for my husband and I, keeping us in touch daily with the scriptures. Mark wrote, I'm working through singing the Lord's song in a strange land. It is both encouraging and terribly convicting. I suppose that is what truth always does in our hearts. Jacob said, the teaching of Dr. Newfeld is so needed. Thank you for not being afraid to tell us as it says. This is the tip of the iceberg as men, women, young and old tap into the Bible. Resources provided with your support. Thank you and please keep it up. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca. Having withstood the test of his faith, Genesis 22 verse 19 adds, So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived in Beersheba. That's to say, Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac, along with their entourage, had settled in Beersheba, and life went on as it normally did. Only that this man who lived in Beersheba lived in such a way that he implicitly trusted God with everything, 
with his son, with his wife, with his wealth, and with his security. All the things that had tripped him up before seemed to have been dealt with. Time would pass, and the day of their death was moving ever closer. The wild adventure of their personal faith was now close to coming to an end. Abraham and Sarah were now very old. And at this point in time, Moses interrupts the narrative and fills us in on the family Abraham and Sarah had left. I'm reading Genesis 22, verses 20 to 24. It says, Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz his firstborn, Buz his brother, Kemuel father of Aram, Chesed, Hatso, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Reumah, bore Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Ma'akah. You know, at first reading, this seems like a, a meaningless bit of information. I mean, these are names we've never heard before in a country now, it's southern Iraq, in a country that, that seems foreign, and so it's, it's tempting just to skip this matter very quickly. But everything in the Bible is there for our benefit. Nahor is the brother that Abraham has left behind when he began his journey. You remember that there were three brothers. One died, one stayed in his country, and Abraham set off on a grand adventure following God. And on the one hand, in comparison to Abraham, Nahor seems to have done very well. He's had three sons and six grandsons from the third son. And then we read of the sons of Nahor's concubine and four more grandsons. And but among his family, we find the name Rebekah, and we'll see her again in chapter 24. Rebekah will have a major part to play, for she will become Isaac's wife. I want you to think about why Moses would have included this bit of information here. I think he did it to contrast Abraham with Nahor. Nahor lived what we might call a normal life, with a wife, kids, grandkids, good job, nice donkey, horses, lots of land. And it's about all we can say. His ancestors have long been forgotten. In contrast, Abraham lived nothing like a normal life. He saw the glory of God on Mount Moriah. He was paving the way for a blessing to come to the entire world. He was setting the stage for a life of faith. You know, as I read this narrative, I'm reminded that faith in God, resting in the promises of God, while it's demanding and will cost a man or a woman everything that they have, is a very great adventure that gives purpose and it is the adventure that results in reward. I'm reminded of Jesus' words recorded in Matthew 16, 25 to 26. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? So here's the eternal question. Which life do you want? Do you want a normal life in which you get everything that everyone else wants and has, and then in the end forfeits your soul? Or do you want the life of faith, a life of the fear of the Lord, a life of relying on the provision of God, the life of resting in God's promises? As we've said in the end of Genesis 22, going on to Genesis 23, it's about the passing of time and about the shortness of life and about the reward of faith. And with that, we come to Genesis 23, verses 1 to 2. It says, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. See, this text represents the great transition in Abraham's life. 
Up till now, Sarah, his wife, has always been at his side. She followed him when he was called to leave his family and his country. She was a part of all of his adventures, his mistakes and his sins, even his sins against her. But she was there to see and participate in the great victories of faith. And they went through it all together. And now she dies. She's 127 years old at her death, and he's 137. Abraham will live another 38 years without her. Truly, this is a great transition moment in his life. You know, whenever I've done a marriage ceremony, I've tried to include the statement in the vows, until death do us part. I know that every single marriage is a temporary thing. If you're married, you must know that it's just for a season. Soon, if Jesus delays his coming, death will close in on one of you, leaving the other to face the rest of his or her life alone. Although some of us may not think about it, death is the great certainty of life. It is that, but for Abraham, this too will be another test of his faith. He will have to move on without her. No matter how long you live, if Christ does not return, you're going to die. Sarah lived 127 years, and by today's standards, that life would be a long life indeed. But then she dies. See, I don't think if you had asked her, she would have said, wow, it seems so long. I think she would have said it seemed so short. You know, we live in a culture that seems obsessed with prolonging life. I've always loved the joke about the guy who died at the age of 97 and then saw the brilliance and great joy of heaven for the first time. And his first thought was, what was I doing eating miserable bran and sprouts and broccoli all those years? I should have been eating pizza and pop and chips and ice cream and donuts. Then I would have left the earth and seen this so much quicker. <laughs> well, once in a while I've read articles on retirement and they seem consumed with how much money you're going to need and how long you're going to live. And I've always wanted to respond and say, and then, you see, we're all going to die. We reach the end of this life and it will come for most of us far quicker than we had ever imagined. Long life does not prevent death. Godly living does not disqualify you from walking in the valley of the shadow. Our geography doesn't prevent it. Kathy and I went through a small graveyard in the Alps in Switzerland. You know, we were amazed that hardly anyone buried there was buried under the age of 85 or 90. All of them had seemed to live a very long life. You know, I said to Kathy, I wonder if it's, it's the pure air around here or the fact that they never walk on level ground so that the heart is kept pumping. I don't know if that's right. It might have been in the water or perhaps that group of people simply had very healthy genetics. But I said, a person ought to live here. But then I thought, well, what am I thinking? All these guys are in the graveyard. They're dead. See, death is the great certainty of life. But that should not alarm believers. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 6 to 8, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we're of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That is the hope of the believer. The moment we are away from this body, we are at home with the Lord. Death has lost its sting in Jesus. When any believer dies, they're immediately at home with the Lord. We do know that when Christ comes again, we all, living and dead, receive our resurrection bodies. And we also know that death for the believer puts us home, at home with the Lord. You know, a great many Bible teachers have said that the saints in the Old Testament had no certainty about the life to come. You know, if that were true, Abraham would simply have encountered this event as loss. Now, I'm going to say more about this tomorrow, but it seems clear to me, simply from reading through my Bible every year, that there is indeed a great hope of eternity in the First Testament. David, 
talked about dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. With this in mind, listen to Psalm 116, verse 15. It says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Did you know that the day of your death is a very precious moment for God? And if that's so, and remember, those words were spoken in the First Testament, and so we've got to assume that the day of Sarah's death was precious in God's sight. Now, we know much more about the world to come than Abraham did. But that's not to say that Abraham did not have an eternal hope. Hebrews 11 verse 10 says of Abraham, He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And so Abraham, the old man who left his country, who believed that when God said his descendants would be as the stars of the sky, that it would be so, who believed God on Mount Moriah, believes God again as he lays his wife in the tomb. And we can do the same. And so what do we know about the transition of time? It tells us again that time moves much more quickly than we would have ever have imagined. But as the days go by, the promises of God never fail. They never fade. We are called upon to believe God at each moment and to allow our faith to result in obedience so that when the day comes in which the greatest transition ever we're called home comes upon us, we will have been those men and women who have believed God as our father Abraham has done. John, this conjures up a lot of thoughts about aging and uh, the folks that I've met recently and I just spent some time with my own mom and the whole idea about aging and how things are changing and, and the insecurities we can feel. We can become overwhelmed, I think, as we grow older, uncertain about what the future really holds. Yeah, I think we need to recognize that everything that we presently have, we only have for a short period of time. Everything is a transition in this life. And unless we grasp that, Ben, I think this is, the, this is one, of the, one of the reasons that we grieve so much over loss is because we thought we had things forever. But the only thing that we have forever is our God and the promises that he's given us, the hope of eternity. We've got those and they can't be taken away. But everything else we will lose. And I think one of the things that happen when people get older is that reality becomes ever more real. And some people can be terrified by that. But I think we need to learn a lifetime of faith so that these things don't overwhelm us. Thanks, John. Remember to join us again here tomorrow for our continuing series, Confident Faith. This is Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. One ministry we celebrate during our 60th anniversary is Laugh Again with Phil Calloway. It's a unique ministry that connects people to a God of hope and joy. What difference does your support of Laugh Again make in people's lives? Listen to this. Each morning, my children and I tune in. It makes us laugh. It sometimes makes me cry. It always helps us look to Jesus. Since we began listening, we've been through some very hard times as a couple. You speak a message of joy, profound and biblical, without being stuffy. It helps us more than you could ever know. Phil doesn't dodge the sometimes harsh realities of life, but in the midst of them shows how applicable the scriptures are. And I listen daily for the laughs, the reminders of God's love and care. Please remember Laugh Again with your support. Your gifts make this important ministry possible. 
Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.